Hi, this is Tracy L. Slatten, and I'd like to thank Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and Tabitha Pope, the librarian, for giving me permission to play this podcast on my channel. librarian on Authors on the Air. I am the host, Tabitha Pope, and welcome to my early edition of the show tonight. I have uh, romance author Tracy L. Flatten, who is an international best-selling author of historical, paranormal, and romantic novels, including Immortal and Broken, the award-winning dystopian actor series, which includes Fallen, Cold Light, Barred Shore, and Blood Sky, the bittersweet romantic comedy, the Love of My Other Life, and the vampire art history romp, The Botticelli Affair. Her contemporary women's fiction novel, The Year of Loving, A Story of Love, Loss, and the Indomitable, Indomitable, that word I love, it's Female Spirit, released in October of 2016 by Pavarotti Press. Tracy also blogs for the Huffington Post and hosts blog talk radio show, <clears throat> Independent Artists and Thinkers. She lives in Manhattan, New York, with her husband, sculptor and I Shabian Howard and she's going to correct me if I got that wrong you can find out more about her on her website which is the link is right here welcome to the show Tracy let me bring you on okay hello <laughs> so sorry about the rush hello are you there <laughs> I'm here I'm here can you hear me okay yeah I can hear you great, great. um I had to I had to rush to get get uh Tracy on the show, and not not her fault, but mine. I had a very happy and friendly insurance agent <laughs> who kept chatting <laughs> about my life. I don't know why. I do you ever get that feeling where people just want to tell you their whole life story all at once, and you're like, "Oh, that happens I mean, to me cool all the time." All? <laughs> it's cool and all, but it's like I, I I really just wanted to squeeze this phone call in before I had to do something else. Could we cut to the chase? Uh, <laughs> so welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm so delighted to be here, and thanks for having me on, Tabitha. I really appreciate it. And you you host your own show um, about your independent artists and thinkers, so um, tell, just tell me a little bit about what that's about. Well, I am married to an artist, um, say Ben Howard, and um, I'm a novelist, and so we just tend to run into a lot of people who are artists and who are unusual thinkers, and just a lot of really, it's it's really just like the cool people show or cool people I want to interview show, so 
I've had all kinds of guests and dancers and writers and um, producers and movie makers and just, you know, people doing really interesting, unusual things, a couple of astrologers. And so it's been, it's been really, really fun because I get to hear different ways that people. Right. Isn't that fun? I love it. I love doing this show. It's just um, like digging into people's brains for a while. It's so much fun. It is. It is. It's, you know, it's always, uh, it's like traveling, you know, you get to experience a new way of being. Exactly. Exactly. I, I feel like I'm, a, I feel like I've been on a journey every time I talk to someone. Um, and, and I'm an introvert, so this, it's not hard for me to talk to you because I just, in my mind, I'm imagining we're talking on the phone. Uh, but you know, it's a fun way for me to, I don't know, get get, get a, a real conversation out there uh, once a week. I have a five-year-old, so I don't get many real conversations. So here we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so your husband is an artist, and were he's you? The, he's a sculptor. Right. He's a sculptor. Okay. So, were you uh, when you two met? Were you already a, a an artist? Were you already writing? I was doing at the time it was in 2000 I was I had a practice as a healer I was doing hands-on healing. Uh-huh. Like Reiki. And you do the eastern style? Reiki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't oh. Reiki. I went to the Barbara Brennan School of Healing and so it was the Barbara Brennan um hands-on yeah. healing technique. That is neat. Was there's a really yeah, neat um place here um in my my hometown spring. It's um, they have a spiritual healing center and they do all that there. They do all different. Uh, I, I don't know what you want practices, different practices of healing there. It's a neat place to. I love going to that place. The vibes are like overwhelmingly cool. Um, but yeah, it's neat. That's neat. Yeah, so, it's fun. Yeah. So you take a lot of that into. Uh, you took a lot of that into your paranormal-ish, uh, dystopian-ish type of uh, writing. Were you able to use your experiences? Yes. In most of my novels, I there's a lot of – there's hands-on healing um, in my – I have a dystopian, a romantic paranormal dystopian series, which is Fallen, Cold Light, Far Shore, Blood Sky, and I'm writing the fifth one now. And the protagonist um, – it's after the world has ended, these lethal mists have come in and scoured the planet clean of buildings and certain kinds of metals. And they've, at the same time, they've kind of opened the floodgates of psychic gifts in people's brains. So the protagonist of that series uh, discovers that she had, by accident, that she has a healing gift. And then in Immortal, my first novel, um, which was a historical novel set in Renaissance Florence about an orphan boy on the streets of Florence, who rises from rags to riches to birth at the stake. Um, and he studied a kind of healing, um, really, it's, it's a takeoff on a cathar term called consolamentum, and it's a kind of laying on of heels, so laying on of hands. So he did that. So it turns up, you know, the spiritual world, world turns up in my fiction all the time. Well, that's pretty cool, and it's I'm well. You write what you know too, so it, if it's something that is important in your life, it's going to come across in your books. Um, 
Do you feel like it's funny how that happens, right? Life to I know, right? To fiction. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, uh, because life is stranger than fiction. I mean, real life really is often very much stranger than fiction. So yeah, Yeah, really. (laughs) Do you? This is aside from your writing, um, since you have practiced that type of thing. Do you think that people um, that everybody has some kind of uh, I don't want to say psychic gifts, but spiritual gifts that they maybe just don't realize then they don't know how to get in touch with them? Yes. I think it's a lot like playing the piano. Some people are never going to do more than play chopsticks, and then there's Mozart. So, and there's everything right. in between. And it's, a lot of it depends on practice and how you're taught and um, native ability. So if you have a great teacher and you practice a lot, you might go further than someone who's got more native ability but doesn't practice and doesn't get the education. So I think that in some ways it's a lot like any other talent. It can be taught, it can be trained, it can be practiced and experienced. and, um, And then there's also... The part of it that's just a gift, like when you read, you know, when you listen to a great musician or uh, a great singer, or you see a great dancer, and you're just like, wow. Or you know, you're watching Michael yeah. Jordan or Tiger Woods, and you're just like, wow, that's like another level of being. So some people are right. just that talented. Yeah, I agree with that. Some people um, got those special special gifts. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's funny because I, I regard myself as an empath and I've been reading up on it because I have always been that person that, like I was just saying, that guy just wanted to blah, 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 blah. And So do I you mean, feel other people's feelings inside your own body? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And funerals are horrible. I Funerals, I, I'm so overwhelmed and exhausted by the end of a funeral. And uh, parties, going to parties, and I, I'm – I'm anxious anyway, but then you put everybody else, you know, they're there. They don't know everybody. They're anxious. I'm feeling that, you know, and then somebody always finds me and I can tell that they're really anxious and they just blah, 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 every time. Talk to me after the show and I'll give you some good psychic protection tricks. There's things you can do to protect yourself and it's important to learn them if you're sensitive and empathic. Yeah, because I, 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 that's one reason I'm an introvert is because of, specifically because of. <laughs> you, you, can learn. you can learn to make your energy field, the outer layer of your energy field, the eggshell of the human energy field. You can learn to make it really thick and really resilient and kind of um, on the outside, it's like Teflon and so that people, other people's energy can slide off it. So yeah. you can learn how to do that. And then you have more options as to whether you want to be an introvert or an extrovert. And you may always see someone who doesn't like the big party. I'd rather be at a small dinner party with friends and really have a great conversation than be at a big dinner mm-hmm. party or a big party. But sometimes it's fun to just go to a great big party and just watch people. But you'll have more choices yeah. once you learn how to create that strong outer boundary, the strong eggshell um, so it's worth, it's worth learning some, t- some of those tricks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree because, yeah, I, it seems like everybody in my family, you know, I'm, I'm at the age where all my mother and her age group, her brothers, everybody else, you know, they're all 
starting to age and people are dying and it's just become a very, here we go again. You know, I've got to go to the family thing with everybody there and everybody, you know, and I feel like they're dumping on me and I, that feels very Don't selfish, let but. Don't let <laughs> you, got, you also, Tabitha, you got to ground. I mean, you got to really, do you do horse stance? Do you know horse stance in martial arts? No. Well, you got to, you know, come down, do squats, you know, get your, energy down into your thighs, into your calves, into your feet, feel your feet connected into the molten core of the earth. You got to learn how to take your center of gravity because you, when I look at you right now, it's like you're kind of floating up around your head and shoulders and you have this beautiful soft energy field floating up around your head and shoulders and your heart too. But what you got to do is drop your center of gravity to the center of the earth and just be that grounded and that connected to the earth. And that is also protection. And that just by running your energy that way, it will give you more pr- protection, even if you don't do, you know, a good eggshell, a good, you know, mm-hmm. Teflon eggshell. You can still protect yourself a lot just by grounding. Interesting. Okay. Well, go I'll, on I'll YouTube. Go on YouTube and look up horse stance and just do that five horse minutes stance. a day, twice okay. a day, every day. I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> I'll forget it by the end of the conversation. So. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for that. <laughs> of course, sure, anytime. <laughs> because it's what it's one of those things I've been waiting to ask, but I haven't been back down there to go in and talk to anybody and like. <laughs> so, thank you. I appreciate that. So, what brought you to writing? Let's go back to you. What brought you to writing? Oh, as a little kid, when I was in first grade, or I think first grade, I was six years old, I went in a few like months from reading Sea Spot Run to reading a big novel and I was in love with reading and from the first novel I've read I just was thunderstruck it was a story of it's called Angel Unaware and it was a story of a, an angel child in heaven watching the family below and I was thunderstruck at the feelings I felt and I thought this is awesome this is what I want to do and it's always been the longing that has led me through my life although there have been some detours, um, and mm-hmm. I've had a lot of interest, but, you know, the one thing that's always come back is writing. And I wrote poems and short stories as a kid, and, um, you know, I was always writing. I always had a pen in hand. As soon as I could, you know, get an Apple computer, I got an Apple computer. I just always <laughs> did that, you know? Yeah, it's 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 one of those. Uh, well, you know, like we were saying, it's one of those things. You were gifted it, the love for it, because you were meant to take it on, um, for real. And uh, so, when did you decide that you were going to try to make it? You know, instead of just writing for your own cathartic need or because you loved it, when did you decide you were going to try to make a book and publish it? Well, I wrote, you know. All along, I've been writing. I just never, never wasn't writing. And instead of my 20s and 30s, I wrote a couple of really bad novels, you know, really bad. And then <laughs> I sat down and started writing Immortal. And uh, I was, we were upstate at this little country cottage that my husband and I used to have. And it was New Paltz, New York. And one morning I got up early. I was pregnant. And I just sat down at my laptop and started writing it. And that's kind of, you know, I really had to teach myself how to write a novel. Unfortunately, I had to reinvent the wheel. But in the 
in some ways I think that's good because in mastering it and learning it, I don't know that I feel like I've ever quite mastered it, but in learning how to write a novel, I really learned it inside my own gut. And I think that's, I, that's where I write from, my gut. Mm-hmm. It's in a rapid yeah, it, process, you know. Writing, you spin it. You spin the web from your gut. That's what I think. You right. pull it out of your gut and spin it and weave it. Well, any other way, I think it would be more forced and, and it wouldn't be authentic to the reader, you know, if you're not pulling it from an authentic place, you know, the story from an authentic place. So. hmm yeah, I, I agree, um, and that's and I guess that's why they always said spinning a story. You know, it's it's like a delicate process that just comes out. Um, and by you say by learning to write a novel, did you use any tools? Where you uh, did you read up on how to you know format a novel or read any of those things? I do. I have lots of books and stuff about you know, structure and plot, and I took a lot of screenwriting classes, and I, you know, I have a master's of fine arts and creative writing poetry, which did not help so much with fiction, but um, (laughs) uh, it gave me, you know, it sort of went through my love of language, which I think can only benefit me, but in terms of, you know, writing novels, um, the screenwriting classes helped a lot, and... Oh, yeah. I did for the for Immortal. I did like five major revisions with my editor, and I just learned so much. You know, there's something you learn just by gutting it out and by sweating it out, and then it becomes yours. <laughs> and <laughs> um, and then yeah. I do. I am both a pantser and a plotter, so I usually start a novel, and I'm really excited about this idea, and I start with this burst of creativity, and it's oceanic and it's overwhelming, and I just so happy and I get into most of the first chapter, second chapter and then I'm like come to a screeching halt and then I've got to sit down (laughs) and write out an outline and so I've learned to kind of trust that and and then there's and there are some novels I was excited about and started and I get two chapters and I'm like nope this is not a novel this is not something I can really turn into a novel and this is was a half of a great idea not the whole kit and caboodle so um, so then I work back. It's funny. I'm exactly the same way. Everything you just said right there, I'm exactly the same way. And I think that's why I haven't finished anything because <laughs> I get into it and then I outline it and then I'm like, okay, where's that burst of energy again? I'm waiting. <laughs> oh, no. Middles are hard. Middles are hellish. But then if you get to the two-thirds mark, then the end, you know the end is in sight. And it's like a horse. You know, you're rounding the turn of the track and you know this is it. This is the last, you know, link that you have to race. And it's really exciting. So for me, if you hang in there through a tough middle, the ending is exciting again. Especially, I often start novels knowing the way I want them to end. Like Immortal ends with Luca being burnt at the stake. And then I wrote that whole novel knowing I was going to burn him at the stake. And I the middle was hard, but boy, when I got towards the end, I could see the end of the side. I was like, yeah, I'm going to burn him at the stake. Woo-hoo! <laughs> oh, this is so evil. <laughs> it's so much fun. You have to torture your characters or it's not good storytelling. Well, that's a, that's a little past torture right there. <laughs> but that's okay. Whatever works. <laughs> so, and, and, anyway, so Tabitha, you know, I, I – 
middles are hell. They're hell. Middles are, you know, you're staring at the screen and wanting to pound yourself in the head, and every page is agony. Every page is agony. But beginnings and endings are really fascinating for me. And then what I've learned is that I often will try to finish a novel too quickly because I get too excited at the end. So I've learned yeah. how to, in the second draft or third draft, I have to slow it down and fix the pacing and earn the ending a little more. Oh, that's something I like I've that. learned. I like the way you said that, earn the ending. I like that. That's, um, that's probably a pretty uh, accurate statement for most people you know because we do we want to rush to the end because we know what we know how we want it to end and you're really excited and you throw it out there and then but you forget all the details and all the build up to it and yeah earn it I like that (laughs) so what were some of your favorite reads um you know either growing up or you told us about the one that you read that was really um eye-opening for you but growing up and and then you know in your adult years? Well, there's a great novel I love um, by a man named Richard Powell, and it's an old historical novel. It's called Whom the Gods Would Destroy. And that's kind of my, I don't know, I guess I'll call it my Bible in some ways because it's just a really well-told story. It's it's set in the Trojan War, and I just love it. It's beautifully written. It's beautifully researched. It's totally believable. You meet all the great characters, you know, Hector and Helen and Paris and all the great um, characters from the Iliad and the Odyssey. Odysseus is a make. It's just a, a fantastic, amazing novel. So that, I read it over and over. And there was a, a great writer named Frank Yerby who also did historical novels. And I did not know until I just loved his, one of his novels was called Goat Song. And it was about a slave boy in ancient Greece. And he just suffered a lot. And it was an amazing novel, and I remember, you know, the first time I read it, I was just in awe at how beautifully written it was by Frank Yerby. And then years later, I was at dinner with someone who told me the story of Frank Yerby, that he was African-American, and he eventually left the United States and moved to Spain because he couldn't stand the racism in the United States. Wow. But I just, I loved his books, you know, and I... I would read anything, like anything. I'd go to the library and just take out as many books as they'd let me, read them in a couple of days and go back as soon, you know, till I got my bicycle. I was always begging my mother to drive me to the library. So, <laughs> um, but I would read all kinds of fiction, you know, when I was in second grade, all the Laura Ingalls Wilder books and, um, oh, yeah. you know, the Bobby Twins, the Hardy Boys and Trixie Belden. And, you know, I would read anything. I, I would read. I just love to read. Do you have a, um, well, I'll be, you've got the one book that you said was so influential on you, um, but do you have a, outside of that that you can think of that a, what am I trying to say? I just lost my words that I was looking for. Um, Another a story. Oh. Well, like a story, it doesn't have to be a particular author, or just an, a story, like a, it could be a story that was, you know, like um, like David and Goliath or uh, Little Red Riding Hood or, you know, just uh, some type of story that sticks out to you in the world of folklore or anything like that that is uh, a... Archetypal stories. Yes. Yeah, like, hey, thank you. I just totally lost that word when I was... <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that happens. Well, I, I actually, I thought a lot about 
Scheherazade, who is a fascinating character to me because she was the teller, the narrator of A Thousand and One Nights. An interesting I like her on the one hand because she is an unending source of stories. So that is something I aspire to. But on the other hand, she was a prisoner. And, you know, she was telling these stories um, at the threat of being executed by the king. So, you know, but this is a story I've thought a lot about. And, I, you know, what you're kind of asking is, like, what is the myth that we live by? And I often right. ask myself, what is the myth that we live by? I think earlier in my life when I was younger, um, I was trying to live out some of my mother, one of my mother's myths, like the myth of Cinderella. And then mm-hmm. as I got older, you know, trying to define the myth for myself and the great stories that mean something to me. Interesting. I mean, I, yeah, and I guess that's what we do when we finally are our own people. We we come into our own being, so to speak, and and realize that maybe their myths aren't for us, and we've got our own story to be told. Um, then you follow some other track, and and it's good that you can identify with something because I think a lot of people just wander around and maybe don't have that that you know what what is my what is my conquest? What is my goal? What is my, you know, type of thing? So that's interesting. I, I'm, I'm still passionate about writing novels. Every moment that I get to write a novel, I feel blessed and fortunate. And, and every page is agony, but I still feel blessed. It's, it's just, <laughs> it's still the longing that's leading me through my life. And a lot of times I wish it, it wasn't, you know. Even when the sales aren't great or I get a terrible review, which, you know, mm-hmm. knock on wood, I don't get too many of those. But, yeah, you know, there are many bad days as a writer and as a novelist. But still, it's just, it's the greatest job in the whole world. And to tell a story and tell it well, you know, it's the greatest, I think it's the greatest function. The two, one of the two great functions we have, one of the three great functions we have as human beings. One is to heal. And the other is to parent, to raise a child. Those are the, what I think, the, you know, to story tell, to heal, and to parent are three of the greatest um, tasks, the journeys we have as human beings. They speak exactly to the human condition, who we are, why we're here, what we're about. And what's funny about that, that you're saying, is that the positions that used to do all three of those were generally held by the women of a culture versus the males, um, Mm -hmm. all three, that they were the storytellers, they were the parents and they were the healers. Um, and you know, um, so storytelling, you know, has been passed down. All of these things get passed down through the female generations down and down and down. And I mean, it's, it's wonder why there's so many female writers out there because, We've been doing it since the beginning of time. Everybody tells their story, tells a story to their child as they go to sleep or reads them stories or, you know, this sort of thing. So besides the fact that oral history, I mean, oral history was all that there was prior to mm-hmm. writing it down on a piece of paper or a rock. So, yeah, it's a wonder, it, it is a wonderful thing, and it's a magical thing because you're putting words on paper that make a beautiful vision in somebody else's head that they can feel through you know you're actually giving them a reason to have feelings which is a magical thing all in, in its own so it and everybody it 
Well, and everybody experiences the book differently, you know, a, a piece of writing differently. So you and I read mm-hmm. the same thing, and you get a completely different experience. Even though we read the same story, we can discuss it on the basis of storyline probably. There's much more to it than that because of your own personal experiences in life. So writing is a magical, magical thing. I love it. It is. It is. It is magical. Yeah. So tell us, uh, we're about halfway through the show, and uh, let me just uh, stop for a second and do a little bit of identification. Um, This is the Librarian on Authors on the Air, and it's a copyrighted and trademarked podcast owned solely by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC, on the web at authorsontheair.com. And if you would like to call in, if you're listening, you want to call in and talk to Tracy, the phone number is 347-633-9609. Okay, so let's get back to... um, talking about your uh, recent release, which you kind of, you just ventured into a little bit of a different genre. You went more Mm -hmm. contemporary. Um, And tell us a little bit about uh, The Year of Loving. The Year of Loving is one woman's voyage through a year when everything goes to hell in a handbasket and she gets involved in this love triangle with these two equally compelling men, one of whom is much younger and one's much older. So it's, it's kind of, (laughs) so she's in the middle of her life and her, she's an art gallerist in New York and her gallery is failing. She's got two kids. One of them doesn't talk to her. The other's totally off the rails getting kicked out of schools and one terrible, you know, teenage, idiot thing after another, which, you know, can sometimes have serious consequences. She's got an ex-husband who's just horrible and constantly suing her, and um, her best friend gets cancer, her dog dies. So in the midst of all oh this travail, and, I know, so this is, so in the midst of all this travail, and then she gets her, she kind of falls into this love triangle where she's at, um, seeing a man who's 10 years younger and a man who's 20 years older than her, and they're both great guys, and they're both imperfect men, but great. And so she's facing a lot of um, (coughs) heartfelt engagements, you know, heartfelt meetings of her Mm -hmm. own life. And so she kind of has to find herself in the midst of all of that. And that's kind of how life happens anyway. <laughs> Everything well, happens I, at once. <laughs> I, that's the way it is for me. I'll have the, like, and for in the book, In the Year of Loving, Sarah, the protagonist, it starts in um, April and ends in January. So it's not quite a year. But I've had, like, those periods when you just are, like, you, you know, you get a run of six months or eight months or ten months when it's just, like, you know, the dog dies, your best friend gets cancer, your mom's got Alzheimer's, you know. Your job, yeah. you get fired from your job, you, you know, it's just like one thing after another. You get those runs of luck, at least in my life. I have. Yeah. A lot of people I've spoken to are like, yeah, that reminds me when I was like 34 or, or the year that this such and such happened and everything went wrong. And you, you come mm-hmm. out of it. I think you emerge on the other side. And some of the questions are it's like, well, what sustains you? When everything is falling away, how do you emerge on the other side? What have you learned? You know, if you, it's easy, I think, to get bitter 
when life just like slaps us repeatedly down. Like we feel like we're just being beaten down by some giant shoe that's trying to grind us into the pavement. And I think you have to find, reach into yourself and find something, some bit of spirit, love, something bigger than yourself that will see you mm-hmm. through to the other side and that keeps you from being bitter. Because life is a gift. And losing your mind. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes losing your mind is helpful. That's a little helpful. Yeah, you know, we can't discount that completely. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I've had those years, and I know lots of people who have had those years. So I think they definitely identify with that. Um, it's, it's funny you said that you were like the dog died. Did it? My, <laughs> we always used to laugh. My dad passed away um, at the end of 2015, but back in uh, 2001, my grand, my grandma died. In January, my grandpa died in at the beginning of April. In between then, my dad had my dog died. His his doctor of twenty something years died. His barber died. <laughs> he lost his Aww. job. <laughs> he was in the hospital with a prostate infection. I mean, Aww. it was just like it was like five months of pure hell. And and it, it was but he was a real upbeat guy, and so. He's, you know, telling people, he's like, well, my dog died in the same week, my barber died, <laughs> my mom died, you know, and it was just like, I, it was just like a country song almost, it was hilariously terrible, you know, but yes, people do have those, and how do you, you know, you've got to dig down deeper, and, and, and thankfully, he was the type of person who, he had reserves, you know, he, he had reserves, he found some spiritual place deep down to, to pull us all out of that because, you know, it wasn't mm. just happening to him. It was happening to everybody. So, right. <clears throat> and I'm, I, today when I, I, yeah, what are they? You know, it's, it's, it's what you, I, I, whatever your spiritual base is, you know, and it doesn't have to be religious either. It's just somehow you dig yourself out of it. What do you think? I think I think you do. I look at back at my life and I look at some of the years I've been through and I kind of shake my head and just, you know. I mean, I'm lucky because yeah. I do have a strong spiritual connection. So, you know, although during those times, sometimes I'm yelling at God. I'm not praying, I'm yelling. I'm like, God, what the hell? What the right. hell are you thinking? Hello. You know. Yeah. God is they they hear you they understand because yeah come on they understand so yeah um, <laughs> yeah I have a year 2011 was what we call the year we don't speak of that was the year my son was born um, that was the best thing that happened the whole year but uh-huh. you know, that my daughter and I still have that conversation she's like oh yeah 2011 that year that we don't speak of yeah that year. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, it doesn't have any nothing to do with my son being born, but him being born was the best part of everything that came out of it. So let's just put it that way. Um, But yeah, you have you have to uh, 
And, and I think that's something that's in common with everybody. I think everybody has those, whether they realize it or not. And some people are lucky enough not to be put in those situations. Um, maybe. I do think some but, people, this is an argument I'm having with a couple people in my life right now. I do think some people have easier lives than other people. And oh, I yeah. actually, I'm, I'm trying to program a life, my next life after this life, which will be a, a vacation life. And right. I will be a bimbo and um, a trophy wife and just, you know, from the time of birth till the time of death. And I just think I can pre-program that life. And it will be like, you know, like you take a week and go to the islands or go somewhere wonderful and have good food or, you know, sit out on the beach and drink pina coladas. Well, that's the life I want. Next life is going to be easy. God, wouldn't it be nice to be able to pre-program your next one at least? I mean, if you got to go through hell in this one, you might as well be able to pick the next one. <laughs> But I don't know the way I the way I feel though you know when you talk about old souls and things like that I feel like I've probably been through a lot of hell in my previous ones too and somehow it just keeps catching on so <laughs> somehow some it feels familiar you know going through something again and it's like hmm interesting that's what I think of like I feel like I've been through this crap before what's going on <laughs> well theoretically. You know, I, I keep wondering about this. But theoretically, if you learn the lesson, you get to move to the next grade. But I think the problem is each successive grade is harder. Maybe. So, you know, you're still doing math when you're in 11th grade. It's not, a, you know, you were doing math in, in 7th grade. You know, now you're doing 11th grade math. It's harder. It's still math. Yeah, you went from uh, uh, addition and subtraction to algebra, so trigonometry and calculus. Exactly. Like, no! But I don't deserve this. Let me go back to kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so year of living. Um, going back to that. So, do you did you find it uh, a little bit different for you to jump into a contemporary type story after you know you were doing the dystopians and the historical type uh, paranormal ish. Yeah, it was different. It was fun. Um, I worked on it on and off for several years. Um, and then I finally completed the first draft and was able to work from there. But it, it was fun. It was There's a little bit of paranormal in it because there's, you know, like she goes into the woods and she feels a sense of life in all things and mm-hmm. in the woods. And um, her best friend has cancer. When her friend dies, she knows her friend dies because for a minute, a split second, she sees her friend in the living room. And that was an mm-hmm. experience, actually, I had with my grandmother, with my, whom I adored and loved. And when she died a couple of days later or a week later, I was in the living room with my, little do- with my then little daughter, who's now 22. Um, and we were in the living room, and my dog started barking. And my daughter and I both turned and looked, and there was my grandmother sitting on the couch. And we were both like, huh. Ah, and then you blink and she was gone. You know, we blinked and she was oh, gone. Wow. But it was, but like the dog barked, we turned there she was, and so I was kind of yeah. trying to recreate that moment um, in the in this novel, or I was drawing on that moment to write that scene. Was it easier as far as world building for you? Because I mean, obviously with your dystopian and uh, you built this whole after, you know, after the world ends type of 
world going on, different rules and things. Well, it was really the other thing the year of loving is, you know, I live in New York City, and I don't know if I'll live here forever. I've lived here for a long time now. Um, but I really do love Manhattan, and I've enjoyed living here in many, many ways. And so year of loving is set mostly in New York City and a few um, a few trips upstate. Uh, and she and so it's kind of a my love story to New York and so there's a lot and it's also set she's a gallerist so she's in the art world and so my protagonist right. knows the art world very well and you know I'm married to probably the foremost classical figurative sculptor in the world so there's I right. have been in and out of that art world and it's craziness so um so in terms of what the world I built, I drew on Manhattan, I drew on the art world, and I drew on kind of parenting in Manhattan, which is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I bet. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine how, um, well, you know, I'm in Texas, and I'm in a little tiny town. So, yeah, I can imagine it's, uh, it's just completely different. And, and much like you would probably have some culture shock coming here, I would probably get way way over culture shock coming there and overwhelmed by it. But travel's great. Travel's good for people. It is. It is. Yeah. So um, so you live in Manhattan. Are you, do you uh, spend a lot of time, do you go out to the parks and things a lot? Are you, uh, are you a homebody? Well, I, I love to travel. I, I am a little bit of a homebody in the sense, you know, I've raised, Four kids, three and a half kids. You know, I have two older daughters. My husband has an older daughter, and we have a daughter together. So we've, I've raised a lot of kids. You know, we got uh-huh. and at one point all four girls or all four daughters. They were all four in the house. And, you know, so at the end of the day with four kids, you don't feel like going out to a party. You know, you yeah, want to no. get in your pajamas and <laughs> lie down. You know, and my little one, who's now 12, was one years old. You know, my oldest daughter was like 16, and I'm changing my little one's diaper saying, let me tell you why you're not going to a senior football party where there are 18-year-old men. Let me explain this to you. Now hand me the diaper ointment. Here, you you do it, and you won't want to do it. Right. (laughs) So, But we've recently, over the last few years, my husband and I have sort of fallen in love with Santa Fe, New Mexico, and we Ah. go every chance. We're going – I don't know, as often as we can afford, basically, three or four times a year. And I, I, I think that at a certain point, we're going to have had enough of Manhattan and we're going to want to be in Santa Fe. It's just so beautiful. The sky is so amazing. It's so blue. It just feels good well, to be and there. I, somebody who, who has a an eye for art and you having been around it all the time and himself, be, you know, I can imagine that it would draw him because it is a beautiful place. It's It's just... It's very picturesque. I mean, it, it's that's a, the only word you can really think of. It, it looks like a picture when you see it, it in does. person. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. I can understand that, and it, and it's mm-hmm. a it's a great place. I think um, for retirement, that's a great place. If you guys are going to chill out somewhere, you can't get that's much more laid back than there. <laughs> it's saving like a bicycle. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of opposite of the busy you know, busy life and area that you live in now. So, yeah, that would be refreshing, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so as far as your life goes in the art, dealing with the art world, is that was that a big, strange adjustment for you to, you know, be with 
with him going to a lot of the um, showings and exhibits, and I'm sure he goes to a lot of different functions. Well, fewer now. We used to go to more. He, um, my first husband was in real estate, and it was just a very different culture, you know. And then uh-huh. I always loved art. I always would get happy to go to a museum and look at great paintings and great art. Um, and then when Saban and I got together, and it became sort of the fabric. I mean, my husband, he recently came to national attention. He's the sculptor for the National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. So he's working oh. with the World War One Memorial Commission to build a memorial that will be in Pershing Park in Washington, D.C. So there's been a lot of press about awesome. Saban and Fox Television did a, it featured him in one of their modern, modern Masters segments. And, um, but he's really, you know, he's really obsessed with Renaissance art. And mm-hmm. before he started doing the memorial, most of his work were classical figures, standing male nudes and male nudes and some female nudes. Um, and then mm-hmm. he's also an extraordinarily gifted and superb draftsman. So, um, you know, he really does talk about Michelangelo. You know, our dinners really do, he does bring up, you know, <laughs> Raphael. And, he, you know, he owns every book, I think, ever written on Michelangelo. And they fill wow. our house in there, not just in English, because he's fluent in Italian. Italian was his first language. So well, half the uh-huh. books are in Italian, half are in English. And, you know, and then I have my books. So we have a lot of books in our house. And, um, I bet. <laughs> not, enough book, not enough bookshelves for them. And they're always flowing everywhere. And, you know, it's nice for me because I like to talk about art and I like to think about art. So he's so Renaissance and classical art driven that, when I go to the MoMA, I, I feel like I've been cheating on him. You know, I feel like I've met a lover or something. I go to the MoMA to see a contemporary artist. When I come back, I check my clothes, make sure there's no stickers on from the MoMA. It's like, what did you do today, honey? Oh, that's the I wrote. Same as always. Never mentioned it. You know. He's listening. But anyway, no, I'm yeah. kidding. His time period is Renaissance from the early Renaissance through the Baroque, and that's where he's fixated. And um, although he's been doing drawings for the World War One Memorial too, because he's you know doing the design for the memorial, so he's drawing. um, Uh But and so those are figures, but they're closed. But uh, he's got some very specific taste, and he's you can't argue with him because he knows everything about art. So. If I say, oh, I like such and such an artist, you know, he just looks at me. It's like, you're wrong. I know he's thinking I'm wrong, and he's just not going to argue with me. And he'll say something like, yeah, Georgia O'Keefe is pretty. Her work's pretty. And I know that's a terrible put down, and I want to kill him. So we have sometimes, you know, discussions about art, but uh, I usually defer to him when he's talking about art because he just is he's obsessed and he's been obsessed since he was 19 years old. So that's awesome, though. Isn't that cool to be that? I mean, I just think it's wonderful to be that passionate about something, to love it so deeply that you know this this time period is my focus and I just am so passionate about it and it's just, it's fascinating to me because most of us are just so scattered out here, you know, scattered to the wind. I mean, yeah, we have one or two things that we hook on, but we we probably just don't find the time to be passionate about it. You know, we could be, but maybe aren't. So <laughs> I don't know. That's yeah. my theory. <laughs> Interesting. 
So what do you've got on the uh on your plate um for the rest of twenty seventeen and, and after that? Well I am working on a few different novels and uh I've got the fifth book of the dystopian series and another historical novel. And then a more contemporary novel but it's a weird I don't even know how to describe it, a paranormal contemporary mystery, I guess. Uh so I'm just one of them will take over. As I'm starting to write on them, one of them will kind of grab me by the throat, throw me up against the wall and say, write me now. And when that <laughs> happens, that's the novel I'll give over to. And then, you know, in the meantime, I'm doing, I do script critiquing for people and publishing consulting and um, writing articles. And uh, I have a Huffington Post column and, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm supposed to be ghostwriting drawing book for Sabin. We worked, We wrote a book together on sculpture called The Art of Life, and it's about mm-hmm. a figurative sculpture from the earliest times, like the Venus of Ullendorf and before, up through Sabin's work, and includes Sabin's work, but it kind of especially focuses on, you know, male nudes and through history, because they're, or, mm-hmm. or male sculptures, because they're all throughout history, and they have lots of interesting symbolism, and um, so many, you know, Carpo and Canova and Michelangelo and Bernini, and um, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of great sculptors to talk about. So we did that together, and then he's been doing all his drawing, and he teaches drawing webinars, and I do all his tech work. So I, I, I build his websites, and I do t- run when he runs a webinar, I'm the tech support. So I'm supposed to be ghostwriting mm-hmm. this book for him called Drawing the Foundation of Art, and I'm I'm not as far into it as I should be. So, <laughs> yeah, so that I've got to get on, you know. Yep, yep. Well, yep bad, yep. Jay-Z, you got to support the hobby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, do you, um, I know that we can find you at your website. Um, it's TracyLFlatten.com. Yeah, TracyLFlatten.com, yeah. Um, in uh, there, I'm, I'm going to click on it and see it real quick. Um, and I'm on, in, in, I'm on Twitter, Tracy L. Flatten. Okay. Um, although my Twitter feed is really fascinating, so please don't judge me by my Twitter feed because I'm really, uh, <laughs> I like to explore lots of ideas, and some of them are far to the left and some are far, far, far to the right. So I'm just exploring <laughs> lots of things on Twitter. And I'm on Facebook and Tumblr and um, Ello and um I am on Gab.i, and I I have a blog that feeds into my website, but I was also, you know, a self-hosted WordPress blog. So mm-hmm. I have a YouTube channel and podcast, so I can be found. You can be found. And all of that uh, stuff is linked to your website, too. So. All of it's linked to my website, can, yes. And then any updates on upcoming stuff, They can, you have a newsletter? I, I I do sort of yes uh, I'm not as good about my newsletter as I should be my husband I'm more, I do more I do his a lot of promotion for him too so I do uh-huh. take better care in some ways I take better care of his fans than of my readers because um, he's got a big <laughs> following and you know I don't know nothing wrong with that and and I see that you're having some post uh, feeds onto your website too which is very cool because I can yeah, find everything all in one place. Great, good. We try. Tabitha, we try. <laughs> well, it has been a pleasure, and I really appreciate the advice. Um, I'll I'll definitely uh, send you an email 
and I'm going to check out the horse stamping. So appreciate that. Great. <laughs> well, thank you for having and, me on your show, Tabitha. It's been so much fun. I'm glad you have fun, and I hope that everybody um, takes a look at the Year of Loving and checks it out. It sounds very interesting, and it sounds like most of us would identify with the uh, Year of Hell. So, uh, well, it's very well, frisky. It's, it's very heartfelt, but it's also frisky. I forgot to mention there's some very frisky scenes in it. Oh, uh, well, frisky's good. We like, yeah, especially if he's a younger man. That sounds really fun. So... Um, <laughs> You have a great evening, and um, again, I appreciate you coming on. You can check Tracy out on her website, tracylflatten.com, and find all her social media links there as well. And um, we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks, Tabitha. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And, guys, you can meet back up with me next. Uh, actually, I'll be here in about an hour, 30 minutes at 9 p.m. Eastern um, with uh, a second guest. And uh, other than that, I'll see you next Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern here on The Librarian. Sweet drinks.